uh, it's, it's really fascinating. You start to see them as part of your team because you went through this anxious situation and uh, and got out of it. But but the problem with play is you know that it's not real, so you don't get the kind of life or death stress response that that you get when you know that it's real. So this this super paintball thing is is particularly fascinating. So did they do? Have they done like neuroscience kind of a look at that specifically? What's going on in their brains in that? I don't know. I just have talked to a lot of guys who've been shot with ammunition. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part four of our mini-series on Smart Cuts with Shane Snow, author of the book Smart Cuts. Shane, what are we going to talk about today? So today we're talking about step two of the scientific method, which is the part where you find questions to be asking based on the observations you've made. Uh, And really what this is is about exploring how to think about the right trees to bark up. When you're trying to engage in innovation, you're trying to solve problems, making sure you're solving the right problem, that you're asking the right questions so you don't spend all of this mental effort on the wrong things. Well, what's the first part of that? Okay, so if if what I just said sounds too basic and too simplistic, it quickly gets more than meets the eye, this topic, and it, it starts with a concept called second-order thinking. Now, what second-order thinking is, is it's thinking about not just the consequences of what happens, so the direct actions, all right, you, you knock something over, it's thinking about the consequences of those consequences. So you knock something over, and that does something else. You knock over the vase, and the water spills, and it fries the electrical outlet or something. So second-order thinking is more than just short-term thinking versus long-term thinking. It's about the ripple effects. And I think ripple effect is a good metaphor because a ripple, you know, you throw a stone in a pond, and the ripple goes in all directions, at least two-dimensionally. And so what second-order thinking is about is thinking through all the ways that the world could be affected by the things you do. And this will play into coming up with better questions to ask when we're trying to solve problems. But it's, it's really this idea that a good chess player doesn't just have great strategies. They're constantly asking, and then what will happen if I make this move? So they're thinking several moves ahead. And it's not just to outsmart people like you would in chess, but to not it's this kind of thinking is to make sure that you don't end up with unintended consequences for what you do, or, you know, in, uh, in legal terms, negative externalities. So if you, you know, if you've taken economics classes, you'll know that externalities are usually talked about, like we, the factory makes a thing, but it, you know, it creates waste and that waste goes in the river. The factory doesn't own the river. So the waste in the river, the poisoned water is a negative externality. Those can be, you know, fairly obvious, but what is the next thing that happens if the, you know, the waste goes in the river? And this often comes about, I'll share a real quick story about this. It often happens in laws or in policies or plans or solutions to problems that are meant to help. The not thinking through the second order thinking makes basically good intentions go bad in ways that are often really hard to detangle. So recently, this one's on my mind because it uh, affects writers like me and, and a lot of writers who I know. 
California recently designed a, a law to protect Uber drivers and, and other freelancers in the gig economy from getting screwed. But that law inadvertently screws over freelance writers. And uh, you know the details don't matter so much, but by not thinking about all of the potential people that could be affected by something that, that was meant to protect someone, suddenly you're throwing out a bunch of people on the street. So second order thinking is thinking in that way so that when you ask the questions that set you down your path of problem solving, you're not asking a question that inadvertently leads you to screw yourself or other people over in the process. You know, I immediately was thinking about sales teams and when we create incentive programs that create, you know, maybe a higher volume of sales right now, but then invite everybody in the rest of the company to hate the sales guys or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or, oh, sales is such a good example, right? You, you incentivize the salespeople, I mean, the, the most basic version is you incentivize the salespeople to close deals by, you know, March 31st, get, get deals in by the end of the quarter. And so they close a bunch of deals that then are an enormous pain for the account management team to handle or that cancel immediately. So then you say, well, let's incentivize them to close deals that, that renew. And then the unintended consequence is it takes a long time to close those deals. And so suddenly you, you're like, well, we need to now close the deals by the end of the quarter. So it's like constantly only thinking through that first step and not, you know, it's hard to come up with commissions. Uh, you know, you, you probably know better than me coming up with incentives for salespeople that accomplish the short-term needs without the long-term, you know, damage uh, or, you know, counter effects, that's, that's really difficult. Well, and you want to, you know, very often it's, you want to incentivize them to, to get out there and get after it. Right. right. And you want to incentivize their work, but when there's no incentive to cooperate or to treat their support people, well, you often, you often invite intense degrees of individualism, which is something that, Salespeople, in, you know, as a sales guy, I consider myself a sales guy for 20-something years, 25 years. Even when I was CEO of an investment fund, I still feel like I was top sales guy, right? Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's a temperament given to individualism and ambition and competition very often. And so when we then create systems to double down on that, like, you know what I mean? It's like yeah. asking me if I want three root beer floats. Like you didn't, you don't need to push that hard, you know? <laughs> right. Well, I, I think I may have mentioned uh, this before to you, either on air or, or off the air, but I've been watching The Wire lately. I'm like 20 years too late to it. But in The Wire, there's this constant thing that drives me crazy, which is that all of these detectives, not all of them, but so many of these detectives and their bosses and the majors and the colonels and the police department, they're so worried about their potential for promotion or how will this look for me that they don't want to take on the case. It's like 13 people have been murdered. Oh, no, I hope I don't get it because then my my you know clearance rate will go down and I'll never get the job. And it's like, yeah, but those 13 people have families and like, uh, you know, the uh, the individualism thing, it's I, I do think it's it's both short term thinking and often inadvertently, you know, not good for second order thinking, because say say you do, you know, in that detective job, you you end up advancing and getting promoted because your rate is high because you haven't solved that many murders. So you don't take them on or whatever. But then more people are getting away with murder and more families are upset that the police don't solve the murders that's going to make your job harder. At some point, kids are throwing rocks at you because they hate the cops, right? Like 
it uh you know there's there's something there and there's something you said too about that, that makes me think of just adding a a moral filter to to the incentives that we have and i'll get to that later if we have time when i talk about chaos theory but there's something really interesting that when you're thinking in these terms of second order thinking there's a there's a little bit of a trick that you can use to to sort of shore yourself up against the worst kinds of unintended consequences but we'll get to that well, I'm going to use an example, and you can tell me if you don't want to continue on this one. But uh, I heard this story about you as a 16-year-old creating your own business with greeting cards that yep. ended up becoming so successful, you ended up making more money than your dad, at which point the parents got really involved in whether this is a business Shane is allowed to do or not. Yeah, yep. So that happened. I, you know, now, you know, decades later, it's, uh, I look on that story only as a lesson learned and as a motivation. But at the time, it was really infuriating. Um, and, you know, part of it was because I was like a crappy teenager. But, but the, the story was, I started making this greeting card site, a couple of my friends were doing similar things. And I started making a lot of money. And my parents got nervous that their 16-year-old kid was getting these huge checks from the internet and his early days of the internet. And so they wanted to know, are you doing something illegal? Is this a scam? Who are you involved with? And I, you know, I showed them no, 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 everything is fine. But they, they got worried that I would basically not learn the value of hard work. And, uh, and so they made me shut down the website and I was furious and they made me get a job at the gas company, digging holes and spray painting gas meters. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what you're getting at with this from, uh, you know, the second order thinking standpoint, but the unintended consequence of that for my parents was I vowed to become an entrepreneur and to never let anyone tell me what I can't do in terms of my career, which, you know, early on ended up being extremely good and set me on a path that, uh, that has led me to, to be a little bit contrarian and also to, you know, all the stuff that we're talking about, I think is to some degree, a consequence of me wanting to prove that you can find a better way to do things than just the traditional, you know, you learn to be a good worker by digging, literally digging holes with shovels. So, you know, I, I may have like the wrong lens on that, but it definitely backfired on my parents to some degree and that that's exactly what I went out and ended up doing. That's funny. You know, I'm interested, you know, years later, you end up building a multi-million dollar tech company can you think of a time there where you thought, oh, this is going to be the greatest, and then it gets going, and then it caused a different problem? Yeah, well, one that I've, I've shared quite a bit over the years is a couple years in, maybe it's like a year and a half in, we almost ran out of money uh, in the business for the dumbest reason. And uh, basically what we did is we had, we had freelance writers and editors, and we had clients. We facilitated them to work together. And then because freelancers, uh, they really have a hard time with cash flow. They often get screwed by their clients. If you get paid like you're an agency, which is like 90 days later, then that might, you know, you might not be able to make rent if you're a freelancer. So part of our value proposition, why we could take a cut in the middle is we said to freelancers, if uh, when you file your assignment, the first draft of whatever it is your client asks you for, we will pay you right then. So as long as you do the upfront work, we'll pay you. Understanding that if you need to make changes or edits, you will do that because you want to keep the client. And you want us to keep you as, as one of our freelancers. And it went over extremely well. Freelancers love this because we solved their cash flow problem. You need money on Saturday, then you do some, some work during the week and you cash out on Saturday. And it's all through PayPal. It's super simple. And we got incredible loyalty from this. A lot of signups, a lot of freelancers really wanted to work with us. But the 
unintended consequence was the thing that happened next. So the consequence was freelancers were happier, our clients were happier, but then we ended up having cash flow problems ourselves because our clients paid us 90 days later. And so the more successful we were, the more clients we got, the more freelancers we had, freelancers we had making money, getting paid, the more we were acting like a bank and floating cash that our clients had not paid us yet. So the irony was, you know, we have a million dollar quarter and couldn't have been more broke. You know, we got to the point where we had like two weeks of cash left um, and, and had to panic and rethink our strategy. So we had to add, you know, how do we to the question, you know, that we're trying to accomplish? How do we make freelancers happy and and provide value to their cash flow situation so that it's worth it for them to, to give us a cut? without causing us to go bankrupt <laughs> ended up being a key thing but it's you know that sort of thing you know you can only get fooled once by that thing but you can get fooled a million times by that thinking that you know where you don't you don't think enough through these second order consequences of things so what did you guys end up doing the thing that ended up working there is actually a really simple solution. We we told our clients that we asked them, can we bill you up front for the work that you estimate you're going to do? And a large percentage of them said yes, because it turns out that for, you know, our clients were marketers and every time they needed to, to pay a bill, they had to go to their finance team, their accounting team, you know, whoever and basically be a pain for someone to get a check written for us. And so if uh, we could reduce the number of times that they did that, that was good for them. So we said, pay for a year up front and you know, maybe we'll give you a little discount and, or you know, just pay for a year up front, what, what do you think? And, uh, and a lot of people didn't even, we didn't even need to get to the discount part before they said, oh yeah, I only got a deal with my finance team once, great. So we ended up having a positive cash float uh, from our clients. So we're, we're essentially holding money in escrow before our freelancers made it. Um, not every client can do that, but enough of them did that it ended up being in our favor, which is, was, you know, surprising, a, a nice surprise for sure. Wow. That's awesome. So any other stories come to mind on this, on this or any other examples come to mind for you? So the thing that I, I like to think about, like if you're, you're trying to wrap your head around this second order thinking idea um, and trying to, to separate it from just like long-term thinking, like to really dig in. An analogy I like to use is, uh, not an analogy, like a thought experiment, I suppose, is think about evil genies. So, you know, not every genie is nice like the genie in Aladdin, like trying to look out for you. Most genies in, you know, mythology, they're trying to screw you over because they hate being a genie. They're trapped. And so, you know, uh, there's that Brendan Fraser movie, Bedazzled, I think, where uh, he meets the devil and she kind of grants wishes, but sort of like a genie. And, and he says, I want to be rich. And so she makes him a drug lord. And he has all the problems associated with being a drug lord. But you could say even like a, a less mean genie that's trying to wriggle out of I want to be rich could just rename you to Richard. And so that's, that's not necessarily second order thinking. That's unintended consequences. But the genie scenario that I like to ask, maybe I'll, I'll actually ask, we can talk through this. I'll ask you this. If the Beach Boys got their wish that all of them could be California girls, I wish all the girls were California girls, what would happen then? So let's say that all females on planet earth suddenly are in california they get teleported there beach boys get their wish what are the kinds of things that would happen what do you think man well i mean my my initial thought here is you go from a population of 30 million something to 3 billion <laughs> you've got some infrastructure problems is day one i mean yep. there's so many things that would happen yeah, yeah. so Cal california so there's you know it's interesting is as i didn't even think about california when i when I kind of started thinking about this hypothetical, I think a lot of people would jump to like, California is going to be in big trouble. You're going to have supply chain problems to get food there. Where are they all going to live? You know, what's going to happen in California? 
But uh, where I immediately jumped to, and this speaks to, I think, the, the, the power of having cognitive diversity you know, in your brain trust when you're thinking about these kinds of second order consequences. You're going to think of things that I'm not going to think of. But I think of you know, all the mothers in India are now gone. And there are a lot of children. I think India and Africa have more youths under 21 than they have people over 21. I, I think that's, that's right. Either way, there's places in the world where that's going to happen. Suddenly, there's going to be kids with no moms. A lot of those kids don't have dads either, so there's going to be like an enormous set of problems there. Uh, but even the ones with dads, like the third order consequence might not just be the dad has more work, but dads might actually lose jobs because they have to spend time dropping off kids. And then there's going to be an unemployment problem in these places. And then if there's unemployment problems in these places, then what happens? Um, so, yeah, there's all sorts of things that would happen. I mean, I think it's a juicy question because once you start thinking about that, like if all, if all the women are in California, you know, who's picking coffee beans? And there's places in the world where women are the ones that pick the coffee beans. You're going to have to restructure that economy or there's going to be no coffee for a while, which means a bunch of people are going to be grouchy, which means they're going to make bad stock trades <laughs> and so on. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to think of, you know, <clears throat> Because so many things like virtues taken to excess become (laughs) problems, Mm -hmm. right? You know, you think like how great it would be if everybody was buying our stuff, which, you know, if you're a cool skateboard brand, you and I both grew up being skateboarders, right? Yeah. I mean, I remember being like offended when you could get Etnies at the mall. I was like, hold on. What are you, what are you doing with those skate shoes? You don't skate. What's, do you know what I mean? And like, look at, look at how classically, you know. Youth fashion is notoriously unforgiving, right? Right. As soon as the exclusive brand isn't the exclusive brand, you know what I mean? All of a sudden, the profits are gone. Like, you look at, with the exception of maybe Volcom, hardly any of those brands that went big and that you could start buying at PacSunwear, you know, real skaters weren't getting tattoos of those logos anymore. Right. (laughs) You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It reminds me of Krispy Kreme. So when I grew up, Krispy Kreme donuts were this, like, prestigious, greatest donut ever. You drive four hours to go get Krispy Kremes. And then when they started putting them in gas stations, you know, now they can sell more Krispy Kremes allegedly, but they actually sold way less because people were like, oh, these are not quality donuts anymore. I, I think the donuts were still the same, but uh, people lost faith in them. That, you know, that I think that falls in the category of unintended consequences rather than necessarily like the second order thing. But the second order mm-hmm. thing of that is they, they had to lay people off. Like they had to restructure, they, they created a whole set of problems because of that. But I think even, even if you're just thinking about it in terms of unintended consequences, not even like the step two unintended consequences, just thinking this way is a useful exercise because it helps us to figure out the right questions to ask. You wanna add those parameters so the genie doesn't screw you over basically. And, and you want to start from, you know, from the right point, you know, Krispy Kreme or Volcom or, you know, these brands, Etnies that uh, they want to increase their distribution, right? The question they probably asked when they, before they made these moves that, that ruined their brands was how do we sell, how do we increase our distribution? It probably wasn't how do we increase our company's profits, right? It probably was something a little bit further down the chain. They weren't, they weren't zooming out enough to a question that, that, that wouldn't have these other consequences. So, you know, a better question than even how do we increase our company's profits uh, might actually be, how do we increase our distribution without decreasing our brand cachet? Without, it's like adding those parameters without losing our most loyal customers, uh, without having to lower our, you know, our, our cost or our, our prices, that sort of thing. So, so this really gets into the second main idea, you know, that, that I want to talk about here, which is how do you 
drill down to the right questions to ask. How do you ask awesome questions? And there's a, there's a couple of things here, but the starting point in general, whether we're talking about these kind of business problems or, or just in general, good questions, I think the, the principle is that you want to ask questions that open up the most possibilities. You're trying to explore, you're trying to set yourself up with, with the most potential to succeed, and you want to ask questions that give you the most possibilities. So that means the worst kinds of questions are multiple choice questions. And this is, uh, this is actually the worst kind of question for an interviewer to ask. So if, you know, if I'm interviewing you, say I have a podcast, I'm inter interviewing you, and I say, Jess, how is it that you became so successful in you know, the, the eight enterprises that you're involved in? Is it because you're good at time management? Or is it because you know, you're just uh, like a smarter thinker than other people? Or is it because like something that your parents taught you? That's not a good question because either A, I'm going to sort of remind you of something that you should talk about and, and get you off track of, of something that's interesting. Or I'm also, I'm taking way too much time on that question when you could be taking more time helping me to understand. You. So if instead I say, how is it that you, you know, you're so successful with the eight enterprises that you have, and I cut the question off with a question mark, then you could go in a bunch of directions that I'm not even thinking about. And so this idea of multiple choice questions, you know, in business, how do we increase our profits for Etney's shoes? Should we go to the malls or should we open a website or should we do something else? That's the wrong question. You don't even get to the should we's until you explore what is the underlying best question. So the, the should we sort of cut off possibilities. The other thing I'll say is, is you don't want questions that are sort of fishing for an answer. And this often happens. This is the way that, that this whole scientific method approach to innovation can be hijacked uh, by people is uh, if you're the leader and you you kind of want a certain outcome, you're hoping you have the idea and you're like, okay, we're going to go through this to try and be buttoned up about it. But I'm really hoping we arrive and put the donuts in the growth, in the gas stations, then you'll be inclined to ask questions that are fishing for that answer. Like what kinds of places where motorists stop to refuel might be good places for us to increase our market share. Like, you know, it's not going to be that dumb, but we're often guilty of that sort of thing. So leading ourselves or leading people to an answer. And then along that line, I would say in general, yes or no questions should be very deliberate. You should only use yes or no questions when you really only want to confirm something as a yes or no. So you want to confirm that something's a fact, great. You, you want to find an idea, you don't want to use yes or no questions unless those yes or no questions are helping you to boil something down to a principle. But should we go, I'm, I'm going to really just sort of, these are bad hypotheticals. Should we put our donuts in gas stations? Yes or no? Maybe that's a good question. But if you're asking that question before you ask the, the better, more underlying question of how can we increase our profits without ruining our brand reputation, then, you know, you don't even need to ask the yes or no question if you've done that kind of uh, proper foundation. Does that, does that kind of make sense? Curious if you have any rebuttal to that, actually. Yeah. Well, it makes me think of a few examples and a couple of questions. One, it makes me, the example was Stephen Colbert on the Colbert Report when he's got, you know, very left-wing movie star on and he asks the question, he says, you know, George Bush, your favorite president or the best president of all time? Which one? <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's interesting how often when we, when we throw out suggestions too early, we, we unintentionally bias them, right? And it's, like to me, I think to me, I guess suggestions or what could be considered multiple choice could be a form of prompting lateral thinking, you know, like Absolutely. 
let's say that they they get out everything that they can. They come up with as many options as they can before we bias them. Or they're just like deer in a headlights. They're like, I have no idea, right? Going like, well, how about A or B or C or D? Just to like get them on the train of getting their brain to to go wider with it makes sense to me. And I guess my question is, in your mind, how do you walk that balance beam of helping them to think laterally versus biasing them? Yeah, I awesome question. It gets at actually a, a key thing with this scientific method is don't jump to the next step before you're ready. Because those kinds of questions, what if questions are awesome for exploring ideas. They're awesome for exploring new territory to, and for combining ideas. Um, and we'll get to this actually in the next episode when we talk about brainstorming and, uh, and hypotheses. So when you're in the hypothesis stage and you, you're trying to find an answer to the right question, then what if we did this like a ballet dancer would, even if that's a crazy question, that's a useful question. That's exactly what you want for sparking lateral thinking. And and same thing with why not questions. The, these are the kinds of questions that open hidden doors. So we'll talk about the, those, we'll dig in deep into those next time. But those kinds of questions are are fantastic for exploring possible answers. And and so I think what you might be getting at, which is interesting and and, and sort of meta is, when you're trying to, when the question is, what's the right question, then, you know, the answers to that question could be helped by what ifs and why nots. Exploring the different kinds of questions is itself its own, you know, it, this whole thing can, can kind of splinter out into little mini scientific methods. So you absolutely can do that. But, but you, you said it itself. The key is you don't want to, and one of the reasons why multiple choice is bad is, uh, or even yes or no is bad, is you don't want to fixate on the wrong things or get stuck sort of thinking about a given particular direction before you've explored enough to to find the best direction. So yeah, so if you, the, the good news is once you know all this stuff and you're you're being cognizant of it, then you can catch yourself when you're employing that bias. Well, we've been talking about you know, gas stations this whole time, let's stop and, you know, and say, is this actually coloring the way that we're even going along this line of inquiry? Okay, let's, let's take that off the table and explore elsewhere for a while. You know, once you're cognizant of that, then, then you can. And in general, I would say that the, the best questions for exploring answers are those hypothetical type questions, the what ifs and the why nots. Uh, the best questions for drilling down really are how and why questions. So why is it that we aren't increasing our market share? Why isn't that our why is it that our customers are not renewing? And those kinds of questions can help us to, to sort of broaden the aperture. And then while you're exploring, well, what if then those can help us with the, the ideation for those right questions? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think maybe the takeaway that I'm getting from this, and I want to have you weigh in on it, but I guess I feel like it's becoming even more clear to me this idea of separating out. Am I asking this question because I'm in persuasion mode and I'm trying to get people to come to my conclusion? Or am I asking this question out of curiosity and exploration and discovery? Like, am I currently pursuing truth or have I decided I have all the truth I need and now I need the troops on board so we can get everybody rowing in the right direction? I love that. I, I love that it's just a like a stop and ask yourself question, right? Like check in with yourself. What mode am I in? I it's similar to a question that I like to ask when when people are talking about problem solving with teams and they say, how much of a diverse pool of thinkers do I need for this question or for this thing? Do we really need 
go through this whole exercise of recruiting a team for this? Can we just use the same people as last time? And, and you know, the, the stop and check yourself question is, for that kind of thing is it's really relevant to what we're talking about. It's are we trying to solve this problem in a novel way? If the answer is no, then who cares? Just gather up as many bodies as you can to uh, do the thing that you've always done. But if the answer is yes, then you want to be thoughtful about who you gather up to solve the problem. And I think to your point with this, am I in exploration mode or am I in persuasion mode? And if you're in persuasion mode, then sure, use all the analogies you want, lead people you know, using questions. You know, I, I, I think there's some value in not relying on rhetorical smarts to outsmart people into believing you and and actually you know allowing people to to argue with your logic so that you can make sure that you're you're right about things but you know if you're in that persuasion mode there's no time for dilly-dallying then use all the tools at your disposal but if you're not then that's when checking in and saying you know are we operating from a place of bias is there a better way to zoom out and ask the question here do we need to answer an underlying question first before we can get to this question that we think we're asking, that sort of thing? Well, you know, for me, I think the reason that I bring that up is so often when I'm trying to give myself a pass of look at how open-minded I am and look at look at how well I'm taking everyone else's ideas into consideration. I'm not a bulldozer, right? Yeah. And it's kind of like that self-deception thing of like, oh, really? Then why are you asking the questions? You know, <laughs> Jess, you're so proud of yourself for being open-minded and asking questions instead of making declarations. Should you really be so proud of yourself? Or are you just disguising your persuader mode and giving yourself a pass when you shouldn't be? Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, the Socratic method using questions to get people to come to the conclusion you want them to come to, ideally the correct conclusion, that is an incredibly effective form of persuasion, but also you can outsmart people that way and get and, and outsmart yourself, like you're saying. They're like, oh, I'm actually allowing my team, actually leaders do this all the time. Yeah, I got participation from my team. I have buy-in because I let them be part of the process for exploring this thing that really was the answer that I wanted all along. Smart people see through that in a lot of cases and, and say, no, we're not allowed to participate. The boss just led us through this exercise so that we could be tricked into thinking that it was our idea. So yeah, it's it's uh, there's so many pitfalls to be fallen into. It's like once you unwind this stuff, you realize just how easy it is for, for you to, to deceive yourself too. And, and then when you get to that level, you're, you being more smart actually gives your subconscious ego more intelligence to deceive you in other ways too, which is like the brutal irony of, of getting smarter is, uh, is our, our, our ego gets smarter too. Yeah. You know, I think my next question then is <clears throat> we, we pat ourselves on the back so much for coming up with good answers, right? And I think that's one of the reasons when I am less collaborative is I want to be seen as the guy with the answer. And I feel good to be the smart guy who came up with the good answer or the whatever, right? Yeah. Why do you think so few of us spend as much time questioning if I'm asking the right question and we jump straight to the answer and then we don't collaborate on the answer? But Interesting. I don't know that I know I can be confident in this answer, but I'd say I suspect it's a couple things. One is our brains work really fast and our brains are good at coming to conclusions because they work very fast and 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 because naturally that's helpful and effective if you're surviving, you know, in the wilderness with the saber-toothed tigers, being able to come to conclusions and and make good quick educated guesses is uh, you know, is, is good for survival. So I suspect that some of that's afoot. 
that we just jump there. And then once you see a potential solution, we, you know, we get attached to it. And so then, you know, we don't want to go back and ask the questions. We don't want to rethink that because we think it's extra work and we've already gotten there or, you know, or, you know, we're, or we like our idea. And so it's hard to, to go in and rethink it. The other hypothesis I'd have is that we don't like being a pain. So the person who asks the question or says, you know, I, I think actually we might not be asking the right question often is hated, you know, because they're creating this, well, back up and do more work thing for everyone else, whether it's to yourself or, or the team. And I don't think we like to be that person. I think we like to be cooperative. We like to get on board with ideas and, and jump to the point where we're trying them out. So I could be wrong, but but that's yeah, yeah. where I go. Well, it it brings up a couple of things for me right off the bat. You know, it, it's interesting to think about this survival mechanism of efficiency, right? Energy conservation, efficiency. It's like a built-in survival trait that we pursue and we hold on a pedestal. And I mean, look, this this whole program is about more with less yeah. <laughs> in so many ways, right? Mm -hmm. And yet that survival mechanism can sometimes self-sabotage when we, you know, it's like when somebody successfully builds a product and overcomes all the obstacles to then find out nobody wants to buy it, right? You know, I think about, uh, you know, it's impossible for me to get through one of these episodes without a special ops example. Okay. I love it though. But let's, let's bring um, it on. I remember a Navy SEAL guy talking to me about good friends. We were talking about different things. We were talking about this concept of when our natural impulses have the, have the opportunity to do us harm, right? And he says, you know, in a firefight, when people are shooting at you, it actually takes training and conditioning to hunker down and stick behind this rock and to not run. Oh. And he said, what happens is the, when the lizard brain takes over, if, if we haven't conditioned that panic out of ourselves, that you'll unfortunately see people pop up, pop up to start running away, not from a place of conscious thought, but from, you know, natural survival reaction and that gets them shot. Wow. And, and so thinking about this idea of like, you know, boldly, quickly solving the problem um, without like taking the tactical pause to yeah. consider the second order effects, including uh, going back and asking, you know, we can solve this problem, but is, you know, does solving this problem encapsulate the full thing we're up against? Or I don't know the right way to ask that, but yeah. my guess is that it's some sort of conditioning and it must be some sort of like reward loop of the times that I have slowed down. It's like slow down to speed up. Mm -hmm. There's some sort of reward loop of the times I have slowed down where we came up with an even better question that negated unnecessary work is my reward to remember to do it next time. I don't know. What, yeah. How did you react to that? Well, you're making me think of uh, there's a, in psychology there, it's uh, pretty well established that humans have a bias for action. And I think that's, uh, that's, you know, it explains what you're talking about with the soldiers jumping up, you know, it, like we want to, if there's a problem to be solved, we want to take action. And, and so, you know, the pause is unnatural. I'm actually really curious so everything you're saying resonates with me. I'm really curious, how do special forces soldiers condition out that, mm. uh, you know, that sort of panic, I need to do something? How do they, I mean, part of it is like being able to, uh, you know, you almost could call it courage. It's like being able to be comfortable in this incredibly uncomfortable situation while you think things through. How do they condition themselves for that? Yeah, you know, the stories that they tell me, in some ways, it's similar to how astronauts are trained not to panic by running through the same scenario over and over and having simulations of the problems thrown at them, right? And there's that conditioning factor. 
but in their case, I mean, A, they actually shoot live rounds and there are real bombs going off in the middle of army bases in America, right? So there's some yeah. there's some aspect to that. But there are other things like simunitions. Have you heard of that before? Simunitions? No. Yeah. It's basically like a super paintball, okay? It okay. looks similar to a regular bullet. It's got gunpowder, all these things, right? But it's shooting like a wax-looking paintball kind of a thing. Okay. And it hurts really bad. I was going to ask, like, is it worse? It, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not like a paintball or an airsoft gun. Like sometimes they break skin. You know, one of the best special ops books of all time is called Fearless about Adam Brown, a SEAL Team 6 guy. It's just the most incredible story. But, you know, he lost an eye because of it. Yep, because it got in on the side. He was wearing eye protection, but he had turned his head at the last minute and it got in through the side of the glass and he lost an eye over it. Like this is, this is no joke, right? But they're survivable. You just get a big welt and you, but I mean, it hurts like a mother. Like you would really like to get through a whole training class with no, with no getting, getting hit zero times like a real gunfight, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it has a much higher correlation to the actual event they're going to need to participate in, in the, like the emotions and the adrenaline and cortisol that's getting dumped in the bloodstream and, and except it happens to be survivable. You know what I mean? Yeah. Super painful, but happens to be survivable. You know, you can see this. I'm not sharing any secrets here. You can see in in BUDS and SQT, uh, SEAL qualification training, you can see they do things like they'll put guys in a room. They put a big hood over their head that's got a, a rope coming off the top. It's almost like a small hula hoop around their neck and a pulley in the ceiling. And they'll put three people in front of him. And he has to quickly, and I don't know if they have airsoft guns. I can't remember what, what they use for this part. But you can watch videos of it online. Somebody will yank the yank the rope so the hood comes off their head, and they have to quickly decide who is the enemy combatant, who is the hostage, and they have to they have to shoot the enemy combatant before they can get shot without shooting any of the hostages. Oof. And and it's just it's it's just you know stretching the brain, right? It's like lifting weights that are too heavy for us to handle and doing it repeatedly, so the brain says send some protein down there, yeah. right? They're, they're doing meaningful repetitions outside the comfort zone to create, you know, myelin around those neural connections so that their their brain is literally able to process those things faster and, you know, maintain it in their sub in their um, neocortex, right? It doesn't just have the, the thalamus. I'm going to get all sciencey on you. But, but it doesn't have the thalamus kick the neocortex offline and have the amygdala dump adrenaline to the bloodstream like we all learned from Billy Madison, right? right? medulla oblongata no is that uh yeah that's a different okay yeah <laughs> so it that's probably more of an answer than you were looking for no i love it i mean i i i love the neuroscience part of these kinds of you know human behavior things i mean that is uh that because with games like what i from what i know about um the psychology of play you know in, in my explorations is uh that playing games simulates the situation of anxiety but where you know it's safe and so you know where i what i've studied is how people that you play with end up becoming more safe and trustworthy to you simply by the act of play it's uh it's, it's really fascinating you start to see them as part of your team because you went through this anxious situation and uh, and got out of it but but the problem with play is you know that it's not real so you don't get the kind of life or death stress response that that you get when you know that it's real so this this super paintball thing is is particularly fascinating so did they do have they done like neuroscience kind of uh, look at that specifically what's going on in their brains in that i don't know 
I just have talked to a lot of guys who've been shot with some munitions and they say it really hurts and that you don't want to get shot. Wow, that's right? that's that's um, fascinating. You know, maybe one last thing on that is have you heard of SEER school before? S-E-R-E? I have not. Survival Escape. Oh no, I'm gonna quote it wrong. Oh, it already Survival sounds awesome. Escape. Man, that's hilarious that I can't remember it right now. Anyways, the last one's evasion. But they they take you to a swamp and you get hunted by other special ops guys until they catch you and Depending on which level of seer school you go to, there they get to torture you a little bit. Okay, <laughs> and like certain levels of seer, like they were allowed to break a bone, but not the sternum or a femur. Okay, whoa, yeah, and like they don't give you food, and they and they're trying to simulate being captured by the enemy and having the mental head game to be able to survive it. And you know, one of the guys on our consulting team was counterintelligence officer for the FBI, and he went over and deployed with one of the special mission units for interrogations. And, you know, he says when they're prepping you for this stuff, they teach you things like how to get the enemy to humanize you, like trying to get your captors to use your name instead of calling you a number, things like that to humanize you. Um, We got to have your head on straight to do that. If you're in pure panic mode, that's not going to happen, right? Oh, yeah. So I guess my question for you is I'm thinking about this and I think how many times I successfully solved the wrong question. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm going to kind of re-ask the same question again of any tips of how I could program my brain, how I could get more neural connections myelinated of, you know, just don't just like think, don't just act. Like think harder, yeah. don't work harder. I mean, I do think a big part of it is practicing it. You know, it's the repetitions that that make you remember. You want to have, I think with with anything, the the more that you can have a trigger that you mm. you recognize that when this trigger happens, I will do this. It's part of it's almost like the you know the the whole sort of habits theory, right? A, a habit is something triggers you, and then you take an action and you get a reward. That's the three steps of the habit cycle. And so, if you have a bad habit, then what you're supposed to do is when you recognize a trigger, you do something differently that gets you that same reward. So, or or a similar reward. So instead of you know you're a lot of, and where a lot of habits turn to addiction is when you're the reward is uh, avoiding pain, you know, like you you get to run away from or escape from something. So you know the addiction, it's the substance itself. Like most substances, even you know there there were. Vietnam soldiers that were on heroin that came home and were not addicted to heroin. Just like doing it doesn't make you addicted, but the ones who remained addicted were the ones who used it to run away from the horrors that they were, you know, had in their heads or or their other problems that they already had. So so the idea with an addiction or a habit is, you know, same trigger, like I start thinking about the the war or whatever. And I want to avoid that awful, horrible, traumatic feeling. Do something else that helps me to avoid that. And this is one of the key principles that like AA operates on. You get the, you know, you you want to have a drink and you feel that panicky feeling. So you call your sponsor, you call a friend, and you get that social connection, that social reward instead of you drink the alcohol and you get that, you know, your that fuzzy feeling that helps you to, you know, to soothe the pain or whatever. So I use that to say that it's, you know, you can apply the same kind of trigger thing to to the habit of not of of action rather than thinking. So then the question is, you know, what are the kinds of scenarios that over and over and over again you tend to do this? I think in business like it could be easier to sort of figure out what are the triggers for me to have this bias towards action and then just when you recognize that that then stop stop yourself. So I mean I think with this like just a real simplistic way to think about it would be when you find yourself proposing doing something, stop 
and ask, what's the question that this is answering? And is that the right question? And, you know, it can be hard to remember just like any, any habit, but it's, it's really focusing on what is the trigger that I will remember. So, you know, an example, another, another one for, for something different is someone once told me that if like, I have always every year forever made have good posture, my new year's resolution, like since I was 20 and, and what really helped rather than just making that resolution every year and then not having good posture is when someone told me every time you walk through a door, check your posture. And so now walking through a door is my trigger to ask myself, oh, how am I standing? Stand up straighter. And, uh, and so it's like without that trigger, it's like I just have to rely on myself to, to have good posture. That has not worked for 15 years. So, so that, that would be my, my sort of main recommendation is figure out what the trigger is before you tend to to do this and then use that as an excuse to back up. You know, as you were saying that, I was thinking how often this is me and my business partners, we're up, something's happened or we're trying to, we're, you know, either something happened or somebody asked the question, how do we do this, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe this is like too elementary or something, but I think like, why couldn't we start business meetings with like a get up on the whiteboard and say, whatever happens, we are going to ask ourselves, are we asking the right questions? And just like literally write it on the whiteboard in that room. Or could we start business meetings like verbally acknowledging that, you know, and and repeatedly doing that and make it part of our internal culture of like, this is how meetings are started at our company. Yeah, Yeah. I I love that. And it also becomes a ritual, which is, is great. That's good for culture itself. Yeah. You know, someone, one of my mentors told me a long time ago that if you care about something, put it on the wall. You know, the photos that you hang on the wall are often things that you care about at your company. If you actually do care about, you know, whatever your mission is, then write it on the wall, make it permanent. We did that at Contently. You walk in and there's this huge mural that says those who tell the stories rule the world. And, you know, that was our kind of like little mantra of storytelling is powerful and we believe in that and use it. And, And so we put it on the wall. I think same kind of thing, like write it on the whiteboard if it's important, even make it into a poster or make it into a ritual. I think that's fantastic. Even even just modeling the behavior as a leader of, you know, you're in the meeting and say, and just saying to the point that everyone knows you're going to say it, well, let's step back and make sure we're asking the right question. Once people know that this is the question that you're going to ask every time, that will help to create the habit too. And it also creates, I mean, all of those things, like either making it the ritual or putting it on the wall or, you know, recognizing that this is your habit creates a little bit of social pressure too for you to keep it up, which is great. You know, it actually makes me think about a principle you've talked about in the past. I remember watching one of your keynotes or interviews or something from five or six years ago. And I believe the interviewer was asking you kind of about like, why did you write this book or why did you write it this way? Talking about smart cuts. Hmm. And you mentioned something about by intentionally pursuing stories of people you admire, and I'm going to quote you wrong here, but by intentionally pursuing stories and finding stories and recording stories of people you really admire who have done stuff like this, it helps you like it helped you compound it within yourself and you were able to make it more of a permanent part of your vision and it became more aspirational internally. Am I, am I misquoting you there? I mean, I, I, I don't think I could properly quote uh, myself from that video, but I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, and you're right. It's whenever you can put just because of the way that stories work, whenever you can put something into a narrative, you will be more likely to remember it. And, uh, you know, this is, there's actually great neuroscience around this too. You know, the the more of your brain that's active when you receive information, the more hooks you have to potentially remember it later. And stories are, are one of the best things to sort of light up multiple parts of your brain. 
And so there's a lot of applications to that. But if this is why having lots of examples to reinforce a principle ends up being useful because you may forget the principle, but if you have enough stories and enough examples, that will help you to to uh, to conjure it up when you need to, which is maybe it's also my excuse for telling so many stories during interviews like these, but but it does it does actually help from a a brain and memory recall standpoint. Well, and I can even see, you know, the author Sean Aker that wrote The Happiness Advantage and Big Potential mm-hmm. and you know, where he talks about we have too much information coming into the brain, it normally needs to pick out what we've told it is important and spam filter the rest. Yep. You know, by intentionally pursuing the stories of others that you admire who have accomplished things using the vehicle you want to pursue yourself, we would train the brain to get even better at finding those stories. And like you know, I think about somebody we had on the podcast recently, Tyler Tringas. When I was a client of his back when he worked at Bloomberg before starting his fund, I remember asking him, how do you, how do you learn, what do you think are ways to learn an industry the fastest? And he said, oh, you should start a blog about it. Because if you have to write about it, you don't, you're not going to want to look dumb and you're going to research so hard that it's going to stick in your brain better than other ways. And I love that. Anyways, it's just kind of what came to mind as you were talking. Yeah, it's so skateboarding, you will know this. When you started skateboarding, suddenly everything starts to look like something you might skateboard on. And so once you know the principle, then suddenly it's easier to see that principle in action. And if you make a habit of collecting stories of that principle, especially if you have an excuse like a blog or you know, you're deliberately trying to come up with – this is why teaching – if you're assigned to teach something, it's easier for you to learn it. Um, because you will look for those things that make it easier for you to teach, which then reinforces your memory. So all of that plays together. Well, maybe before we move on to the third principle here, maybe you can, I'll steal some of your questions and you can explain them. Like the idea of the difference between how do we kill the rats versus why are there so many rats versus how do we end up with zero rats? Can you talk about that? Yeah. And this actually, this question comes from, I I would say it's maybe a little bit too strong to say that this is the question that led me to meet my wife, but it's not far off because this is the conversation I had with the guy I met at the bar who inadvertently introduced me to his ex-girlfriend who I ended up marrying. So this is already a great story. Yeah. And and I think he, he actually introduced me to her mistakenly thinking that I had been hitting on him while having this conversation and, and thinking that I wouldn't be interested in her. But joke's on him. So how do we kill the rats is a question that anyone who's lived in a big city or certainly that's run a big city has had and never been able to answer in a way that uh, that's you know worth repeating in history. Otherwise, we'd have no rats. How do we kill the rats is, uh, is such a tax, taxing is the wrong word, distressing question. And I actually think it's the wrong question, which is part of why we haven't gotten rid of the rats. So if you have a big rat problem in a city like New York and you ask the question, how do we kill the rats, then all you will do is come up with ways to try to kill the rats. The problem is the rats always come back. You can't kill them all. They all come back. And, uh, and this is because it turns out that rat, like, pop, rat communities are aware of the size of their population. And if their population goes down significantly in a short amount of time, they will breed faster. 
to make up that population. They're always trying to basically fill the whatever the container of their their population is. So anything you do, you can wipe out, you know, nine tenths of the rats and they will immediately come back by breeding nine times as fast or whatever the and the math isn't exactly like that, but that's what rats do. So how do we kill the rats ends up being this uh, really futile question to be asking. And and so a better question if you want to get rid of the rats is not how do we kill them, but why are there so many rats? This gets at something that I think is important is the why questions are often the questions that we should ask before the how questions. Why are there so many rats can help us understand the principle behind a situation. I get to those first principles. This is actually where the scientific method kind of goes backwards to what we were talking about last time. But why are there so many rats? It turns out that one of the answers is because rat populations will expand to fill their container no matter what you do to them. They will vary the rate at which they breed. And, and also, you know, there's a, once you ask why are there so many rats, it, it gets at some of the things that can help with getting rid of the rats. You know, like there's a lot of rats because there's a lot of garbage. Actually, why there are domestic cats is because there used to be a lot of rats and there used to be a lot of garbage. We domesticated cats to get rid of the rats. So, but when you dig into that, it can help you to understand the first principles that then allow you to ask a better question. So to me, what's interesting about this is if you were to ask, why are there so many rats and spend a lot of time on that train of thought, then that can help you to ask a better question when you decide you do need to get rid of the rats. The better question than how do we kill the rats is how do we end up with zero rats? How do we kill the rats presumes a methodology for accomplishing the goal. The goal is zero rats. So how do we do that is the better question. And I, I like this as an example because so often we think that we are asking a really good question, but we're presuming something in that question. Again, there's an assumption. Killing the rats is the way to get to zero rats. We want the end goal of zero rats. So how do we get that? And uh, how this comes into play with the, the story of, of me meeting Sylvia is uh, I just read this article about these two ladies in Arizona who invented rat birth control. And and the, and I that was the thing that I talked to this guy at the bar when I showed up to this birthday party and you know and I was waiting for someone and he was at the bar waiting for his ex-girlfriend and and I, I got to talking to him and he brought up like the rats are awful in here in Alphabet City in New York and I said have you heard about rat birth control and then we talked about that for like an hour and and then later in the night he came by with Sylvia and he's like oh man you got to meet this guy Shane we he's like such a great guy lives in the neighborhood. Yeah, you should meet him, Shane. Here's Sylvia. Like, pretty much, like, sure that I was gay, and and then I got her number, and and we went out, and and we eventually got married. So the rat birth control thing is basically these ladies in in Arizona, actually a gay couple. So it, it, it all connected, I suppose. But these ladies in Arizona, they they were working on the rat problem from this. Like, what if we didn't kill the rats? We just we could somehow get them to die without making more rats because they'd ask the question, why are there so many rats? Well, because they breed faster when they need to. And so what this rat birth control thing is, is it's, it's actually taking cities a long time to roll it out because they're worried about the second order uh, effects of this. But basically, instead of poisoning the rats, you feed them this, you, you know, spread rat birth control everywhere. So they eat that, and then they just can't make new rat babies. And so rats live like five years or whatever. And then when they all die, there's just no more rats. So that's a, a much more elegant solution to the problem. And they get to live their little rat lives or whatever. But so they had just uh, come up with this idea and they were rolling it out in Seattle or something like a pilot in a limited way because they, they want to make sure that this doesn't cause other you know effects. Are the rats doing something positive? It seems likely not. But could this rat birth control actually lead the rats to like poop something that actually is really harmful to cats or whatever? 
so they were working on that but also it could be that you know i i wouldn't wouldn't know it's uh you know we she and i met three years ago so maybe they have rolled it out and they're just waiting for the rats to die but that whole story is to say be careful even of your questions that you think are good because they they may not be and so how do we kill the rats versus how do we end up with zero rats is the thing to remember no it's interesting i you know, I think about it for us at, at Greystoke, it's like, maybe instead of maybe instead of asking, how do we get more investors, right? That's not really the question. It's how can we get the largest amount of assets under management? You know, maybe yeah. that's maybe that's one investor or a lot of times we think in the investment world, we are thinking that way. We're thinking, how can I get the biggest investor, right? Mm -hmm. But sometimes you have to jump through so many hoops, like to get one guy to put in the first million is sometimes a lot longer of a process than getting 20 guys to put in 50 grand. Yeah. Even though that sounds like so much effort, because you can just buy a guy a $50 stake, show him what's going on. And, and it's like, it's just below the number where he has to ask his wife if he's allowed to put money in. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And there's a whole different social dynamic. When you show up and you need a million dollars and this one person's going to grant your whole future, they, it tempts them to act like a king, you know, mm -hmm. and to make you jump through all these hoops and stuff. When they find out they're one of 20 and that you're talking to 50 people to try and get 20 yeses and they're just one of them, in my experience, they treat you much more like a peer. They don't make you jump through all these hoops and, and you know, fantastic. it's just been my experience. Yeah, that's a fantastic example. And it also, I mean, even just at framing the question, how do we get the most assets under management? When you get to the hypothesis stage, you know, that, that right there, you know, flipping, you know, the, the paradigm on, on who your investors are and how much they put in. Is, uh, is one, and that's maybe even one of the more obvious things that you could end up coming up with, you know, once you start asking those what if questions. And, uh, you know, I, I suspect that, that you could come up with five other ways besides just that, if you ask that question rather than just the question that you default to. But back to what I feel like I've learned from you so much, both through the books and watching interviews and actually interviewing you is you're constantly asking and or inviting me to ask it's always been done that way does that mean it always has to be done that way yeah and like it's prestigious in my space to have the biggest fund put cash into your deal or to have the the mm -hmm. richest billionaire in your deal that's prestigious it's cool it's magnetic it's attractive yet it may not be efficient you know what i mean it may yeah. not be that shortest route and so getting to that place of like deeper intellectual humility, deeper intellectual honesty, where, you know, it is a legitimate, we were having this question yesterday, if we hired tons and tons of sales reps everywhere, and it started to feel like multi-level marketing, mm. uh, and we got that reputation, would that disqualify us from having more serious players want to talk to us because they wouldn't want to be associated with us? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. It, it actually... <laughs> It, it gets at the downside of the the thing that I was about to say is you know going back to sometimes asking these questions makes you look bad you know and sometimes proposing the strategy of you know not going after these big uh, whales that make your fund look good actually you know people will poo poo you if you, you oh you get little guys to write fifty thousand dollar checks. However, there's also the downside of that too, which is the, you know, you could get to the point where that actually does hurt your brand and does have the negative consequence of you can't even get those guys because you look like an MLM. And uh, the, the last quick example of this that I, I'll, I'll share is it's like the guy, the world champion food eater who uh, eats the hot dogs and wins the, the Coney Island hot dog thing every year. The, the game used to be, it was like 10 minutes 
who can eat the most hot dogs. And the game used to be shove hot dogs down your mouth like eating a hot dog. And the world record was like 25 hot dogs. And when this guy Kobayashi did it, he did like 50 hot dogs, like literally doubled the world record. It's like Usain Bolt runs, you know, a four second 100 meter dash. Is like so insane. And what he did was by eating the hot dogs in like kind of an embarrassing way, he took the hot dog out of the bun, broke the hot dog in half, shoved that in his mouth because it's just like he's chewing with his hands essentially. And he dipped the buns in and he'd eat a bunch of those. And then he'd catch up with the buns, dip the buns in water and shove those in his mouth. It, it turns out that after you know a lot of trial and error, that was twice as fast even though he looked ridiculous doing it. And it was like these macho guys were like, that's not the way it's done. But it's it's asking the question, not how do you eat hot dogs faster, but how do you make hot dogs easier to eat? And that was the source of, you know, that breakthrough. And anyway, that's... Uh, I love it. Well, I, I'm really interested because I know that you have thought about and this idea of how second order thinking relates to chaos theory. Can you Can you jump into that? Yeah, so this is uh, kind of the nerdy wrap-up to this principle is chaos theory is super interesting. But one of the things in chaos theory is this uh, idea of a fractal or like a repeating pattern, a thing that you look at and it's uh, it's like a micro version of itself in it. So like you look at a fern and, and the leaf of a fern, if you zoom in on it, is like a bunch of mini leaves of ferns. You zoom in on that, it's a bunch of mini, mini, mini leaves of ferns. So what chaos theory deals with is uh, things that in life in the universe end up being patterns that you don't see. And, and one of those patterns is these things that just repeat themselves over and over again. And so uh, there, there's two angles of the chaos theory thing that I, I, I say keep in mind when you're thinking of the second order thinking of better questions. And the first is that questions and the scientific method quickly turn into a billion versions of themselves. So that one question can lead you to have 10 new questions or 10 new observations that then lead you to 10 new scientific methods. And each of those can turn into 10. So it can quickly get out of hand. And on the one hand, that's okay for, for these things to multiply. If you're really trying to find the truth, trying to find the, the best possible way to do something, don't resist that. Don't try and shut down the process. If it, it starts to, uh, to get more, you know, sort of more of a runaway process, and, and actually, if you want to guide that fractal thing in a, in a more productive way, you want to start with the why questions before you go to the how questions. So the why questions are the ones that are more like the, the trunk of that fern tree that then you can build the how questions off of. But if you start with the how question, it's like you're working on the leaves that you don't know the trunk. So I'm using analogies, which I know the last time I warned against. So caveat is it's not the perfect analogy, but if you want... To not have chaos, if you want the chaos to actually turn into something uh, that's useful, like a pattern, then start with why questions before you go to how questions. So that's why the why are there so many rats is the question that precedes the how do we end up with zero rats question. Without why are there so many rats, you, you won't necessarily get to the right how question. So that's the first thing with chaos theory is just think of that repeating fern fractal thing. And think about how am I going to not get sucked into that forever, starting with the why questions. And the second thing with chaos theory is, is really this idea that even in randomness, all what chaos theory really is about is even in randomness, patterns emerge. And there's all sorts of really cool, if you want to like an hour long diversion on the internet later today, anyone who's listening to this, look up the Wikipedia page for chaos theory or look up chaos theory GIFs. 
on the internet and and see what you find. And what they you'll find is a lot of stuff where it's like random generators, like drop like a, a pixel in a random spot based on some math. And, and if you run the random generator long enough, it will eventually turn into a pattern that the math ends up unfolding in, uh, you know, these random pixels turn into what looks like a Christmas tree or whatever. And, and this is, is kind of what happens with complex systems, with the world, that everything in life is connected to other things in the universe. It's all connected. So everything does have second order consequences that eventually come around. Like nothing that you do, no decision you make is going to be truly random. It's all going to end up being part of something and being part of a pattern. So thinking about this, you know, second order consequences, you just can't ignore it because there will always be a second order consequence. It will always come back to the pattern, even if you can't see how this has to do with anything. And, uh, and within that, I guess with that knowledge, what part of our goal is, is to make sure that what we do doesn't cause the system to go into whack, that like we're really trying to, so this is where it's not exactly chaos theory, but I like chaos theory as the way to think about it. You're trying to not cause chaos with whatever you do. And so the best advice for a, a hack for how to, to cut off that endless question cycle is to come up with guiding principles or moral virtues that you can use as filters on your questions. So we don't have enough time to explore every question. So we've come up with the best question we can. Now let's run it through some filters. Um, and the filters basically are, should be, how do we not do bad things? It's, it's like the, the, to use the genie thing. All right, so I'm gonna ask the genie for a wish and I'm going to add as many caveats as I can so that it maybe doesn't go wrong because I don't have enough time to think of the perfect wish. So I'm going to do my best here. So this is where, you know, what kind of was brought up before having guiding principles around, you know, how do we do this while minimizing harm? That could be a guiding principle. Or how do we do this while preserving our reputation? Or how do we do this while not screwing over our customers or whatever it is. So it's how do we stop the cancer without killing the person? Because if you ask a genie to stop the cancer, they might just kill you. Or how do we, you know, to use a real life example, instead of how do we get rid of the drugs, how do we prevent drug related health crisis in a way that leads to the least amount of harm to communities and families? So, you know, if we'd asked that question at the start of the war on drugs, then we would have made a lot of different policies that wouldn't have led to second order effects like, you know, drug lords show up when you make something illegal. So how do we stop people? Really the problem with drugs that, that we were worried about stopping, if you strip away kind of the racist politics that were involved in the creation of all of it, if we, you know, the, the genuine concern was certain substances cause health problems and, and people who become addicted to those that have those health, health problems or have mental health problems or have behaviors that then are a public health crisis. So how do we prevent that in a way that causes the least amount of harm to communities? So the, in the way that causes the least amount of harm to the communities is the filter. So the, the thing that I would say is as you're trying to come up with the right questions and you want to not cause chaos, you know that everything is, is going into the system that eventually comes back around, uh, come up with your filters. And this is, you know, I think a lot of people will call these values. I like to, to not call them values because values get conflated with, with ways of doing things or with best practices. I do like to think of them as principles or moral virtues. Like for me, I'm always going to run everything through the filter of wisdom and kindness before I do anything. So this, this thing, how do I do this thing while also being kind, while also maximizing you know, the chances that I'm not hurting people. 
So that's that's sort of the the capstone to my thinking on second order thinking is is that because it can get out of hand, having some principles that you then tag on to your genie query can often help you to ask a much better question than you would before. You know, I love it. It it reminds me so much of the law of constraints. Other people have called it where it's like, you know, the Dr. Seuss story where he brings his publisher a book and says, hey, this book only has 250 words in it because I rhyme so much. And the editor said to him, I bet you couldn't write one with just 50 words. And he comes back with Green Eggs and Ham that ends up being one of the best-selling children's book of all time, right? I've never heard that. That's and, awesome. Yeah. And and it's interesting because it feels like such a limit on creativity, but yet those walls give us something to push against, you know? Like I think about when I was running my fund, I was this young CEO and I ended up needing a CEO coach, right? Mm-hmm. And And then I loved it so much, I actually took classes to do it for other CEOs, right? And over the years have, have been able to do a lot of this. And one of the questions I ask when I'm starting off with folks is like, we get their like, do want list, don't want list mm-hmm. as a starting place. And when they say things like, I want to make more money, I say, well, like how much? And they're like, I would like to double, I would like to double my take home. And then we start adding constraints. And I say, would you like to double your take home as long as you work less than 16 hours a day, less than 14 hours a day? Like how much? Oh, no, no, no. I don't want to work extra. I just want to double my income with a maximum of 10 hours or, you know, <laughs> And it's like, and is that, is that 10 hours, no vacations or how many, oh no, I want to be able to go on a tri- at least one cool trip a month, you know, and we start adding all these constraints and it's like that destination clarity mm. actually helps them in their vehicle selection. You know, it's like, Hey, yeah. if your spouse says, if you live out by park city or in Utah and your wife says, Hey, I want to go East for our anniversary. You're like, how far East, honey? Like, are we biking? Do we, do we need to like rent an RV? How far East? And she's like, I want to have lunch at the Eiffel tower. You're like, Oh, okay. Basically no vehicles except an airplane. You're going to be okay. So no matter what good a deal I get on an RV or, or a, another mode of transportation, if we can't get back and forth to Paris, it's really easy to say no to those. Right. Yeah. I, you know, you're making me think of uh, like actually something that could be a good exercise for people is to think of your questions like Google search queries or even better, like querying your inbox. If you want to find something, you know, if you put in just the keyword or or the basic question, you might end up with a lot of stuff. I think email is especially good. Like if I type in Jess in my email, I'm not necessarily going to get the specific email I want. I might do Jess minus, you know, whatever. I could get, you know, Jess at GQ might send me an email every day from GQ, right, for their newsletter. So Jess minus GQ or and plus Greystoke or plus attachment. Thinking of those things, like the question doesn't have to be small, right? In fact, the, the question that gets you exactly what you want may end up being a really long query, and, and that's okay. And I, I think maybe that's actually a misconception, you know, assumption, that it has to be an easy question to, to say, that it, it can't actually be a formula. Actually, you know, formulas often get us the thing that we, that we want. They often help clarify. So I, I like I the, the Paris analogy or scenario for that, too, is it's like East is not enough. If you want a really baller honeymoon, you know, if you want it to turn out the way that she wants. So yeah, so add add those constraints or those queries so that you can narrow down between Paris and Prague or whatever, rather than, you know, between, you know, Sandy, Utah and Prague. <laughs> I love it. Well, I know that you have talked at times or or at least have thought about this idea that kind of eventually everything is connected. Can you can you talk about 
this second order thinking, chaos theory, everything's connected and, and like systems thinking and how that could help us? Yeah. So systems thinking is a really interesting and it's an interesting thing to explore in general. And it's kind of, I think this is something that I've been thinking about writing about actually, because it's uh, when you, you read about systems thinking, it's really complicated to figure out. It, it's hard it's not easy, um, but the basic idea of systems thinking is this everything's connected idea, or really that things that are connected are a system. So, and it, especially if the things that are connected create something new because of them. So, you know, the simplest version of this is that a family is a system because the parents create something new and the family together actually create new things, traditions and memories and, you know, all of that. So that's what a system is. And complex systems are the ones where things are not so straightforward in figuring out A plus B equals C. And, uh, you know, the world is a complex system. Economics are complex systems. Companies often are more complex systems than we think. And so, you know, when you're trying to solve problems in companies, the the danger that happens, especially for, I I would say, people who are founders or people who are are coming in from, you know, say management school or from a, a certain paradigm, you think that things are simpler than they are because they used to be simple when it was early on or because it's simple in your textbooks. But you know, questions like how do we make the morale not bad at this company? You know, how do we how do we improve the morale? You know, can have unintended surprising, you know, consequences in the context of a of a complex system. You know, a a system of a company where people talk and there are ripple effects that happen. If you, you know, you say how do we make the morale here not bad? Even posing that question might create a feedback loop that causes the morale to be bad. You know, if you say if the CEO says how do we make the morale here not bad? Then people hear that they get scared. The CEO thinks the morale is bad. Maybe you know, maybe the the writing's on the wall. Maybe I should look for it's time to move on. And so someone who's like a linchpin in the company starts putting their their resume out there, and maybe they do get a great job, and then them leaving causes other people to panic, which causes the morale to be bad. I'm not saying that that's that is what's going to happen if you you pose that question, but because the system is more complex than morale good, people doing good, and morale bad, people doing bad, it's like even the question of morale could change the system. It's like, uh, oh, sorry, you're, you're about to say something? Well, I'm just thinking, you know, this idea of that systems are complex, right? And that cause and effect are not always so simple because we often can do decent at cause and effect on the one part we're working on, but have not thought about the second order effects of what this is going to do to the whole system. I guess I'm kind of fascinated by your life of going to journalism school and ending up with multi-million dollar tech company, right? <laughs> yeah. So, and, and you've got this great Rolodex and you get to meet all these cool people I wish I knew and all this kind of stuff, right? So my goal in life is to hopefully end up being Shane, if everyone could just acknowledge <laughs> that. Okay. So well, I, but I'm my, my question with that goal, but uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm flattered so by my it. Question, I, yeah, yeah. So my question here is thinking about thinking about your business or your life, this idea of of specifically when cause and effect wasn't so simple and how you eventually figured it out and then how the next time you made a decision, you did have it in systems thinking, which I'm putting you on the spot. So maybe you don't have a story like that, but yeah, the first, there's two things that come to mind. The first is that anytime you solve a problem because you screwed up and you have to, to save things, you know, like our cash flow thing, it uh, helps you to be more aware of the systems that you're operating in, which 
helps you to make hopefully if you learn the lesson and and you you know you think through things it helps you to be more smart about the second order effects of decisions you make in the future and i think it it gets at for me why postmortems are such a good idea even postmortems on on things that go well being able to to ask the question why did this go well and actually take the time you know especially with victories you know, we we don't actually go back and say let's spend a day deconstructing all of the things that happened as a result of the actions we took that led us to be right we just say let's do that again you know and and too often with with failures even like the even the well-meaning approach of oh get up and dust yourself off and try again or it's okay you know failure makes us stronger so let's push forward without the interstitial step of the postmortem why did that happen we we don't necessarily learn enough and and in thinking of that in the context of systems the 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 more you can do those postmortems the more you can understand the why uh, things happen understand the principles that are operating on and uh, you know, understanding the principles helps you to ask better questions in the future. That's why first principles and observations come before questions and second order thinking. So that's where I go with that. Is that the being able to see more of the system helps you to to ask the better questions. And and for me with my career, I guess if I were to connect those things, I do think that one of my natural things has been systems thinking. Why I'm so drawn to explore different areas and. You know, and as we'll get to in, in you know future conversations about this, one of the ways to employ lateral thinking is to reach across you know to different industries or different systems and import ideas and principles from those systems. That's that's like a fundamental approach to innovation, and uh, and so I think knowing that I am. I've sort of reinforced that it has become a little bit of a, a feedback loop. I tend to pursue that. And so I tend to do more of that. And it helps me to then look at things from a systems point of view. But if if I'm going to move from journalism to you know starting a tech company, I I tend to ask myself, what from journalism can I bring to to do better than other tech entrepreneurs in tech companies? What what are the, the unique things from journalism that I can bring? And that necessitates an analysis of the system, of the way that I operate in journalism and the way that the best people operate in journalism and why the things work and don't work in journalism in order for me to import those ideas. So, and, and actually, it, it literally comes back to what you were saying before. I've deliberately written about these things so that I could explore them. I've written various articles, especially when I first was starting Contently, about what entrepreneurs can learn from journalism so that I could do that analysis. Like that was the excuse. I don't think I thought of it as systems thinking necessarily, uh, but uh, but now I do. So that's where I go when you ask that question. I don't know, is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, it's great. Well, we covered a lot of ground and I know there's like 50 other stories that I didn't let you tell. What how do you want to wrap this up? What, what do you feel like would help kind of encapsulate the last 90 minutes we've covered here? Oof, encapsulating it all. I mean, I, I, I think- We're just know. ending on a high note either way. Oh, sure. Well, maybe maybe we can can do the all of this as an entree to the fun part, which is the coming up with ideas. So yeah, I mean, can I, can I just go ahead yeah. and say that? Okay, go for it. So all of this is an entree to the fun part, which I think a lot of people who are familiar with lateral thinking a little bit, or at least listen to the first episode that we had in this mini series, what people are hoping for and hoping we get to faster, which is the, how do you come up with awesome ideas? How do you use lateral thinking to be more creative? How do you do brainstorming better? How do you do thought experiments? That's all the hypothesis stage, which if if you've done these first two things, the observations, first principles, and you've done the question stage, right? 
then it just sets you up to make it even easier on yourself when you get to the creative part. Some creative ideas write themselves when you set them up in the right way. So that's what we have to look forward to next. And and you'll notice, Jess, and anyone who's listening, that when we dig in into that part, all sorts of things from these last four episodes will tie together and it will itself start to look like a system that, that wasn't there. And the, the benefit of systems by definition is that they, they're supposed to add up to more than the sum of their parts. So hopefully by the time we get through the next one, you will have quite the toolkit to, to think dramatically differently and dramatically better. And then, of course, we'll dig into some more things to, to make sure that, that we bulletproof your hypotheses, that you come to conclusions in smart ways, and, and that you can then, you know, I'm really excited for at the end of this series, we're going to dig into multidisciplinarity and cognitive diversity and setting yourself up for the maximum leverage I guess you could say, for employing these kinds of things. But, but basically what I'm trying to say is we've, we've had some fun stories and some good principles, but now we're getting to the fun part. I love it. Well, everybody, please tune in for the next part of the miniseries. Uh, thanks again, Shane. Yeah, thank you.